breakfast uh, really badly. And uh, so uh, just, uh, did, we pray for, did we pray for any of them before the service began? All right, let me, let me begin, begin with a word of prayer for that. Father, I thank you for just the, the people that you've brought to this church family. For each and every one, Father, you have a purpose. Father, I pray that we would each be sensitive to your leading in our lives. Uh, Lord, there are many within our congregation that are struggling with illness, whether it be temporary or, or uh, very serious. And Father, we turn to you on a regular basis and ask for your intervention in their life. And so, Lord, we, we, we do that again today. We pray for those who are struggling with cancer. We pray for those who are struggling with life issues. We pray for those who, are, who have loved ones uh, in the grip of sinfulness. And, uh, Father, we recognize that uh, we can only turn to you uh, with these requests that we know we cannot affect change. Father, I do pray that you'd bless uh, Aaron and Valerie and Sherry as uh, each of them are uh, not feeling well today. Pray your blessing upon uh, Pastor Jeff with his uh, burn, Lord, that there would be no infection. Uh, Father, I pray that as we come into your word today, that whatever might be on our hearts and minds for our own life or the life of our loved ones, that maybe we put that center stage and say, Lord, help me understand how the gospel answers these questions of life. Help me understand how we are supposed to walk this path as a family. How, how am I supposed to do it as an individual? Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that as we uh, study it now, that you would be pleased with uh, certainly the delivery. But Father, I pray for the reception, uh, not only in this hour, but in the days to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So this morning I want to start off as I normally do with a question. Oh, I am not projecting. So... That means I just do what Aaron does, all right? Unless you're going to do what Aaron does. Let me see if this works again. All right. There we go. All right. Uh, uh, I want to ask you to imagine something. Imagine you are trapped in a maze and friends you trust tell you they know the way out. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those massive mazes with shrubbery and all around. I think it was pretty common in, in Europe and, and uh, in castles and all rich people must have had their mazes. I don't know. Maybe you've, been at, maybe you've been in an escape room or something. You couldn't figure out how to get out and you were, you were looking at your watch thinking, I've got to go. I've got to go. I've got to be here. I've got to do this. I gotta, but I'm not getting out of this maze. I'm trapped. And you, have, you meet some friends that you trust, and they tell you they know the way out. So I ask you to consider, how would you feel? Right? That's good news. I'm in a situation where I feel trapped. I, uh, I need to get someplace at some time, and I have people telling me they know the way. So I'm going to ask you to imagine a little further. Imagine you discover that your trustworthy friends have been trapped in the same maze for longer than you. All right? How do you feel? How do you feel at that point? Well, I'd say your confidence scale is probably waning a little bit. You're probably struggling to understand if, if, how can they tell me how to get out of here if they can't get out themselves. And then finally, I'd ask you to imagine that the creator of the maze tells you he will show you the way out. He is the subject matter expert on this particular maze. You're there. You're looking at your watch. You're stressing. He comes on and says, listen, I know the way. I'm going to show you the exit. And he gives you the exit. It doesn't take much uh, imagination, honestly, to know where I'm going with this. But I, I wanted to share that in that particular situation, you'd probably be feeling pretty comfortable 
that this particular person was the right one to answer the need that you had. This is uh, part of my testimony of coming to faith in Jesus. We just heard Christopher's earlier. Uh, I, I mean Chris, all right? We heard Chris's earlier, uh, his testimony of faith. Anytime we hear uh, someone give a, you know, a testimony of salvation, we're on their every word because we want to know what changed in their life. And I ask you this morning to remember that time in your life where you, you understood the gospel. You understood who Jesus was and what he has done for you. For me... Uh, I had no confidence that God was happy with me because I knew I was a sinner. That was my way of phrasing it as I, as I try to remember back to the time where I was just wandering uh, in a religious environment, in a moral environment, yet knowing I was a sinner, of somehow coming to grips with this, I had no confidence, and I ask you to consider if you did or not. I had no confidence that God was happy with me. That's the way I I was phrasing it. God wasn't happy with me. I'm a sinner. How can he be happy with me? Sin was the problem, and I didn't think I could ever find my way out of its maze. And um, praise God I did. But I ask you this morning, is there sin in your life? I mean, is there sin where you, you recognize, I've never bowed the knee to Jesus Christ? We use all this Christian terminology. Would you say God is happy with your life today? Answer that question privately in your own mind and heart. Is God happy with you today? Uh, I'm going to flesh that out a little bit more as we go through the sermon here, but I did not think that God was happy with the way I was living, and I didn't know any way out. I was told by people I trusted that God is happy with me as long as I do certain things. As long as I went here and did this and prayed this and, and observed this day and do different things, and, and if I was a good person, that God would be happy with me. This is what they were trusting in. The people I'm trusting in, that they were trusting in this, this belief, but it never brought me confidence. I, I, I heard all that. I grew up in that environment. I knew what they were saying, but I still had no confidence because I knew I was a sinner. Then I encountered the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the Creator showed me the way out. And folks, if there's anything more glorious, I don't know what it is. To know that you are a vile person, wearing the mask of righteousness, wearing the mask of holiness, of of the nice guy, of the obedient child, of the of the person who's got it all together, when you know behind that mask you're just this vile person. There's nothing greater than to know that you can be set free from the maze of sin and death. So how did I feel when I discovered that those I was, uh, that I trusted were wrong, right? That they were trusting these things. How, how did I feel? Well, first of all, I, th- I felt be- deceived and I felt betrayed. And maybe, maybe you have felt this as well. I'll, be, I'll go even further to say that in my testimony coming to faith in Christ, I was angry. Because I feel like the organization that my family had been faithful to and, and, and all the teachings and all the things, I felt like I had been deceived. They told me this, but it's this. And if no one had intervened in my life through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to me the truth, I would st- still be in that maze of sin with no way out. I felt betrayed. I had a family member who said uh, that he understood the gospel, 
Um, and, and to be honest with you, I don't think he did. Uh, but I remember him saying the words. You know how people use our same words, and they, they, they think they mean the same things. And, and, and this, this uh, family member of mine told me that, oh, yeah, I know what it means to be born again. And I went off, you know, checking sanctification, right? I didn't know all that back then. I was just like, what do you mean you know? If you know what I didn't know, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell the rest of the family? I remember being very angry. So I felt deceived. I felt betrayed. Uh, and I questioned a lot of what I had been taught. There was much in, in my background, a lot, a lot of religious stuff. Some was, I questioned it in the sense of I, I, re, I, I reexamined it, and it was faithful. It was true to Scripture, and I didn't have to jettison that. But there were parts of it that I just had to jettison. And maybe you have some of that same testimony in your life. I believe that questioning my faith actually resulted in strengthening my faith. If we are willing to question our faith, come to grips and say, why is it, what is it that I believe? Why do I believe what I believe? I think that's a healthy questioning. I think God honors that questioning. This isn't questioning my faith as in uh, uh, throwing God under the bus saying, hey, this, Christian, this Christianity stuff, this Bible stuff, this doesn't work. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying legitimate questioning of what is my faith really all about? Because that's a question I think we should all engage in. Because I discover that salvation from sin is totally the work of God. I, I came to know that. And that, therefore, I felt relieved and then I felt responsible. I felt relieved, kind of like Chris was sharing. I didn't want to go to hell either. It's, it's not the primary reason we should get saved, but it's certainly a reason to ask the questions about, is my faith sufficient? Do I believe in, in what the Bible teaches to have a right relationship with God so that I can avoid hell? But I can't just pray some, some prayer, empty prayer, and think I'm, somehow God's going to treat that as if it's legit and I'm going to not go to hell. Uh, as Chris shared his testimony, as you share yours. If you were afraid of going to hell and that's what prompted you to ask the questions and to search Scripture and to come to faith in Christ, praise God. I was relieved that I knew the truth. But I also felt very responsible because the very, very family member I called to account, I now know the truth. And so I have shared the gospel with my mother. I've shared it with my father. I've shared it with who are both now in eternity. I've shared it with my siblings. And I've shared it with others. And to this day, there's one person that I know, actually, well, one person in my immediate family, as in, uh, you know, cousins, nephews, nieces, nephews, that kind of stuff, that is a believer in Jesus Christ, as I know saving faith to be. And I wasn't the one who witnessed that person. Somebody else did. Praise God. So I feel responsible. But the journey of finding the right answers has been the greatest joy of my life, and I hope that's what you're experiencing as well. Have you ever questioned what you were taught about God? Has that ever come to your mind? And some of us think, oh, oh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned because, you know, I questioned you. No, I told you, God is big enough to handle our questions. I learned that from someone who would call himself a liberal. And he challenged me one day. He says, I think my God is big enough to handle my big questions. I'm like, you may call yourself a liberal, but I think you're a believer. All right, but that's between you and God. But I'm telling you, my vote is that you're a believer. Have you ever questioned what, what God taught you or what you've been taught about God? Are you willing to receive the right answers? Because as we consider what 
our life is like. We have to go somewhere for our answers. And the only place we can go when we're talking about right answers about faith in God is the Bible. It is the only authority that we have to go by because it's God's word about himself. It's God's word about our fellow man. It's God's word about us. And so as we've been in this series, there's no, uh, the study of Galatians, it is with a firm foundation of belief and conviction that there is no other gospel that answers our questions. The questions that pertain to life, salvation, eternity, forgiveness, mercy, grace, love, calling upon life. There's no other gospel. So we uh, have been listening to Paul as he's, he's been uh, confronting the Galatians uh, with this idea of the questions about their faith. They obviously were deviating from what they had come to believe because Paul is saying, you believe this, but, but now you're tempted to believe this. And he comes on the scene and says, believe what you first believed. Let me explain this to you. And so he goes through. And he's been explaining how people are justified, how they're declared righteous in God's eyes. We've hit this over and over again. He's been explaining this. But let me use different words today. Words that spoke to me when I was a, an unbeliever in need of Christ. He explains how we can have confidence that God is happy with us. Have you ever wondered if God is happy with you as an individual? Now, this is, this is solely, this, I mean, this is legitimately looking at the, the aspect of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And yet, because of what Paul is teaching in the area of justification, I think I can confidently say that God is happy with you if you've confessed Christ as your Savior and have trusted in nothing else. Your relationship is secure with God. But we go through life and we think, God has, we, we think God has it out for us. We think that God is punishing us. God is doing I've legitimately come to faith. You've legitimately come to faith in God. We've become his child. And somehow we think God's going to kick us to the curb. It's not going to happen, folks. If you have genuine faith in Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done, you are a child of God. That is is something that you can have confidence in. God is happy that you are his child. Now, if you're caught up in, I just got to say this, if you're caught up in habitual sin, he's not happy about that. I mean, he doesn't, but he, it's not going to cost you your salvation. That's the context of this passage that we're in. There is this truth that the righteousness and holiness of God must be satisfied and that we are sinners condemned to hell by the, from the time we're born into this world. And the only solution between His holiness and our sinfulness is the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is saying. You believed it, Galatians, and we have believed it in this room if we've come to faith. So we are declared righteous in God's eyes when we come to faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, who paid our debt of sin. That's the gospel. That's the good news. This is the mystery that has been revealed to the ages that God's Son came into this world as a man, lived a sinless life, and died on that cross to pay for our sins, not his. He died paying the debt of sin. He rose again in fulfillment of the Scripture, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, is constantly making intercession for us as our mediator, and he is coming again, praise God. That's all found in the Bible. As we looked at verses 1 through 18, we, I'm summing it up this way. Justification by faith in Jesus alone 
is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. That was really the, the focus of two weeks ago. We have engaged in this idea that there's this thing called the promise, and there's this thing called the law. And how are we supposed to understand how they relate? Because there was some confusion in the, Galatians, in the churches in Galatia. There may be confusion in our room today to understand how, how am I supposed to understand the law of God, which often we, we think of as the Ten Commandments, and I'm not saying that's wrong. We'll, we can use that for an illustration. But we're talking about the whole law uh, that is going on in the Galatians' day. There were those that said, yes, come to faith in Jesus. That opens the door to salvation. But then live the law, and, then, and, and you, can, you can enter in, you can have, be righteous in God's eyes. And Paul's saying, no, it's a false gospel. Faith in Jesus alone is the only thing. He paid it all. Faith in Him is all that it takes. And because that is what He's saying, He's saying justification by faith in Jesus, not through the the acts of the law, not through obedience to the law. Justification by faith in Jesus alone is the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. What promise? The promise to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Come from out. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless those who come from your, from your, your, your lineage, right? Those who are your descendants. I'm going to bless the whole world. And we talked about two weeks ago that that person is Jesus Christ. He is the seed, capital S, of Abraham. The one that all promises of God are fulfilled. The Bible never tells us, and this is what the Judaizers are saying, the Bible never tells us that we are declared righteous by obeying God's law. And yet that's what I believed. And that's what many of you, many of you believe, that if I, if I obey, I'm good. If I disobey, I'm bad. Well, in one sense, yeah, you're good or bad, depending on you know, what, you're, what sins you might be involved in in terms of relationship to one another. But when we're talking about in God's eyes, God is saying you are declared righteous because of your faith in Christ alone. It's never, ever been about obeying God's law when we're talking about salvation when we're talking about escaping the maze of sin. So as we look at verses 19 through 25, we're going to kind of pick up where we left off uh, two weeks ago. And I'm going to start off by saying, if obeying the law does not save us, then what is its purpose? Why did God give the law? This, was the, this is the, the, the question, really, uh, that Paul's asking. He starts off verse 19, says, What purpose then does the law serve? He's asking this question. It's a rhetorical question. Because think about this for a second. You have Jewish people who have been raised their entire lives to honor the law, obey the law, to, be, uh, to understand the law, the law, the law is what makes God happy. And Paul is saying the promise, the promise, the promise. You have to go before. And that's what we're going to look at here in a little bit more. But he says, uh, there, the question that, was, that was assumed, Paul's assuming was on their mind is, well, what is the purpose of the law? Why did God give it to us? So he starts off and he says, what purpose then does the law serve? So I'm going to give you a short little illustration of what translation looks like. Here's the Greek for that verse. It's four words in the Greek. It's seven. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yes, so it's seven in English. And so I want you to understand, when we come to this text, what purpose, the New King James Version is bringing focus on the purpose, and that's totally acceptable. It's totally acceptable. But those four words basically say why or what. The first word just tells us it's a question, as well as the semicolon at the end is a way of indicating that it's a question as, as well. It's actually a question mark. 
All right. But the first one is, is why or what? That's what that first word means. It's a question. And then un is the idea of therefore, building upon what has happened before. And then that's the second two, uh, hanamas, is the law. Just four words. Why therefore the law? The, the New King James fleshes it out as, as drawing our attention to the purpose of the law. But as we look at the other translations, it also draws out the idea of the why of the law. Why was it given? And every one of these translations is legit. They're on equal par. There's not one that's better than another. They're all, they're all just taking those four words and trying to flesh it out into English so we understand what's going on. Why then the law? Why then was the law given? Why the law then? It, it was fascinating to me that they're all different, right? I, I mean, I go to these translations all the time. Uh, the English Standard Version, the Holman uh, Christian Standard Bible, and then the New American Standard Bible. Uh, and then the, this one, the, our main verses in the New King James. So what we see here is what Paul is, he, he's, I think he's drawing both those aspects out in it. Well, I don't think we have to choose what purpose and why given. What purpose was the law and why was it given? That's the question that he begins to unpack for the Galatians. And in answering his own question, Paul explains more about the relationship between the law and the promise. He's still trying to convince them of what the importance is of the promise in, in relationship to the law. So we learned in verse 17 uh, two weeks ago that the promise came before the law. This is what he said. He says, this is what I mean, Paul writes. The law, which came 430 years afterward, after the promise, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. We, we, we covered that. So there, there's the, the, what, we, what we see there is that the promise came before the law. As, we, as we get into today's text, he's saying that this law was added because of sin. He says, he says uh, in this text, in verse 19, what purpose then does the law serve? Uh, he says it was added because of transgressions. I struggle with that word, transgressions. All right? Um, it was added. What, the, the point I want to help us understand as we're looking at this text, am I doing right on this sound? Because it sounds like it cut out on me. You guys, uh, you're giving me thumbs up. They're saying no. There we are. Now we're back. All right. Uh, it was added because of transgressions. We're going to call transgressions sin, and we're going to look at that, and we're saying, but what we're to see here is that the law, some, the law was, it did, it was added to something. We have to ask ourselves what the something is. If we understand it from the standpoint of the Judaizers, we could think that the law was added to the promise in the sense that they were united in such a way that now the law became part of the promise and you had to fulfill both the, the promise and the law. And Paul's saying that's, that's the false gospel. That's not true. So, but we do know that God, God basically added the, the, uh, the law in some facet to, to what? I, I call it his plan. I mean, it's, his plan has always been his plan from eternity past. Paul's already established that. But I think as we're trying to wrestle with this text, what was the purpose of the law? Why did it come? Well, it was given, it was added, excuse me, because of transgressions. There was sin, and, and we know that happened in the Garden of Eden, right? So sin was in the world. But what we also learn through Scripture is that where there is no law, there is no sin. We see that in Romans, a sister passage to this, which I encourage you to study. I actually, and 
preparation for this, I read through chapters 4 through 8, I think it was, just because I couldn't stop reading. Because it fleshes this out in, in much more detail, much more detail than I can go through in a single sermon. But the reality is, the, the, the law was added. It was given later than the promise. It was added to the plan of God for the purpose of sin. But there's more, all right? So we see that the law was added because of sin. But we also see that the law was temporary. That's that next phrase. It's, it's a temporal thing. The law is not permanent in the sense of, uh, that we're going to see here. It says, till. It's a time reference. It says, until the seed, capital S, talking about Jesus Christ, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So we, what we see is, why, why, Paul asks, what purpose then does the law serve? I want to know. I've been obeying it all my life and trusting in it my whole life. But it was added because of transgressions. That was the beginning of the law. It was added because of sin. Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. There's the terminus. The law exists at some designated point after sin came into the world. And, but we see the terminus. It's when, till the seed should come. That's Jesus. To whom the promise was made. This was connecting us to the earlier verses. So we see that it was uh, before the law, it was added, it was temporary, and we see that the law was given through angels to Moses. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this text, that's, that's coming out of left field. It's like, why are we talking about angels and why are we talking about mediators, which I'm calling Moses here, all right? He says in the text, he says, listen, another aspect of this law coming was uh, it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Well, that's nice to know. But we actually don't know that from the Old Testament. We know that from the New Testament, uh, specifically in Hebrews. Uh, Paul fleshes, or excuse me, the author of Hebrews uh, fleshes this out and, and, and shares that uh, the law came through some mediatory, uh, through some activity, angelic activity, and through the mediation of Moses. God did not speak directly to the people of Israel when it came to the law. It came through angelic activity and the mediator, uh, the, the Paul, uh, excuse me, Moses is a mediator to the people. Remember, they said, we can't take God talking to us. You, you speak to God, you tell us what he said. And that's what happened. So what is, why is this important? As we're, as we're considering the relationship between law and promise, the law was given through angels to Moses. Well, that's nice. But what's the significance? Well, as we look here, we're going to see the significance is that the promise was given by God to Abraham. We are in the context of understanding law and promise. As we consider this, the law, as we look at this text, the law was given through angels, created beings, and, medi and, and the mediator of Moses, another human being like the Israelites. That's the way the law came into the world. Paul's point here is, now a mediator does not mediate for only one, right? Right? There's a mediation that took place between God and man, but it happened with the angelic activity and with Moses as the, as the mediator. But the promise, it's just not in the text, but that's what he's talking about. But the promise, but God is one. The promise is better because God didn't choose to work through a mediator into Abraham's life. God spoke directly to Abraham. He gave him the covenant he ratified the covenant all by himself. And so what we learn through these uh, first few verses is that 
we see that the promise is superior to the law. The promise, the promise is what we need to have hope in. The promise is needed, it needs to be understood. The promise is what's going to get you out of the maze of sin and bring you to life in Christ and righteousness. The law will never do that. Why? Well, those are the second, next set of verses. In, in verses 21 through 25, we're going to see that the law serves the promise. It's subservient to. And that's what Paul uh, explains to us very clearly. He asks another question. Is the law then against the promise of God? Remember, this is what's going on in the hearts and minds of people. Everything that they believe is being challenged. Everything I had been told had been challenged in my life. I, I wanted to get out of this maze of sin, but I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out. I couldn't get out. We'll do this and do this. I'll do that. It doesn't work. I don't have confidence. I do not know. If I die tomorrow, I think I'm going to hell. These people are one and the same thing. If we don't have the law, we feel like we're undone. He says, is the law then the fact that it's uh, subservient to the, to, the, uh, to the promise? Is the law of... Is it not valuable? Once again, I'm going to encourage you. Go to the book of Romans. Read chapters 4, 5, 6, 7. Just keep reading. It just, it's all in there. and It's spread out. Is the law then against the promise of God? What do you think? Paul didn't waste any time. He said, certainly not. There is not a stronger way for him to establish his opposition to that belief that somehow the law is deficient. The law has never been deficient for what God called the law to do. He says, certainly not. The law and the promise are not at odds with one another. As we continue to look at this relationship, we see the law was never meant to give life. It was never meant to give righteousness. That's why we can say that it's, it's not inadequate in any way. Because it was never intended to give us salvation. Faith has always been God's plan for salvation. Faith in response to grace. It's, it's all, and actually the faith is grace, His grace is bestowed upon us too, but that's, a, that's another Romans discussion, right? The law was never meant to give life or righteousness. That's what he, he says. Listen, for if there had been a law uh, given which could have given life, it's very clear in the Greek. We see that if word and we think, oh, there's a, a realm of possibility. No. In the Greek, it is no possible way. This is, Paul is saying if, but it never did happen. There had been a law given which could have given life. Truly, righteousness would have been by the law. He's saying, no, the law is wonderful. The law is beautiful. He says that, again, beautifully in Romans. But here he's just pointing out, he's saying, the law was given if there was a law ever given to give life. It would be the law. But no law has been given to give life. The promise has been given. So the law was never meant to give life or righteousness. And Paul brings to witness here the Scripture, and he says the Scripture has imprisoned everyone for their sin. Look, look at this text. But the Scripture, I, I anticipated that, that Scripture and law were the same thing. As I did my reading, it's not. The, the prevailing view is that, you know, Paul sometimes has used different words to say the same thing. And I thought, oh, here he's just using Scripture to, to represent the law. No, he's not. I don't think he is. The, the Scripture has confined all under sin. The promise was given 
in the garden, we talked about that two weeks ago, it was given to certainly get to Abraham and his descendants. It was certainly, we saw uh, promises given to David, and we know all promises are fulfilled in Christ. But just as much as uh, Scripture points to Christ as the fulfillment of all promises, Scripture is, is consistent in teaching that sin confines all in prison. This is that maze of sin and death. The Scripture has confined us all there. It is a consistent witness that if you're guilty of sin, you are, you are guilty and you are condemned. But why, so why did that come? Why the law? Is the law and the promise at odds? He says, no, the Scripture confined us all under sin. As a, as a young person, I didn't have any problem with knowing I was a sinner. I'm hoping nobody in here struggles with that. But if you do, let me inform you, you're a sinner. Uh, I would say take my word for it, but no, take God's word for it, and, and we'll talk more about that. Uh, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's an all-encompassing, it's a universal truth that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's the beauty of it. I'm sorry. Uh, that's the beauty of it. The scripture had as its purpose. It's, it's witnessing to the, to, the, to the reality of all of us being under sin. And so we see that scripture has imprisoned everyone. We do not come against Scripture, and we do not come to Scripture and find ourselves righteous. We come to Scripture, and we find ourselves guilty of sin. That is the teaching of Scripture, and therefore we're all in prison. But the next thing we see in the relationship between law and promise is that when one believes the promise, they are set free from the prison. That's the second point, that the promise by faith. Paul is being very consistent, very logical, and he's, exta- he's establishing the relationship very clearly that the promise of faith must be in Jesus and it will be, the, 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 the promise will be given to those who believe. It's all of faith. So the relationship between law and promise, all this is true. But notice this. So as we get into verse 23, we see that law was also... It, it, the, the Scripture established us in prison, but the, the law itself is our prison guard. Remember those prison guards that uh, Peter was uh, chained to? And uh, he was, and 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 the little girl, and all these people are praying for him, and and then an angel shows up and and uh, releases Peter. You know, the chains fall off. He exits the jail. He thinks he's in a vision. He realizes, no, nope, this is real. He shows up at the door. The little girl opens the door, slams the door in his face because she can't believe it's him. But that's what they prayed for: is that God would deliver Peter. And Peter was delivered that night from the guard of his prison cell that he was chained to. That's a picture of salvation if, if, you, if you want to have that going through your mind because it says here, but before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law. Our prison guard is the law. All the rules, all the things that we're called to be obedient to. It says, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. That guard it was established and was firm and was not going to leave until its appointed time. So we see that the law was our prison guard in verse 23, but we're going to see that the law was our supervisory guarding in 24. And believe it or not, we're almost done. I want to just tell you, this prison mentality, this this picture that Paul's using, have you felt it? Have you you felt like you were under some sort of condemnation? Have you felt like, I just can't figure this out? And then you came to Christ. But maybe you're here this morning and you still feel like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm still in that maze. Before faith, you have to realize we were kept under the guard of the law. We have to reckon with the law before we can receive the promise. 
You have to reckon with it. You have to see yourself in it. And you have to see yourself as a sinner. Because the law condemns. The law is what will help you understand your standing before God. Before faith. Because then it says, kept for the faith. We were under guard of the law. The law was kept for the faith, which would afterward be revealed. Afterward of what? The afterward of, of Jesus coming onto this earth as a, as a, as a man and, and going through his life and dying on that cross and being resurrected and being ascended into heaven, all that. Listen, this is, this is, this is all in here. So we see that the law was our prison guard, but it was, it was also our supervisory guardian. Maybe some of you have uh, nannies. Uh, uh, not nanny. That's, that's, that's my kid's nanny right there, right? N-A-N-I. Uh, we're not talking about you, Mom. All right, we're talking about, we're talking about uh, N-A-N-N-Y. Maybe you've had a nanny. Uh, maybe you had some uh, a, a, a au pair or something like that. I don't know what, how to say that in French. Um, but listen, that's kind of the idea of this supervisory guardian. Someone who is, you have entrusted your children to for their upbringing and well-being, for instruction, how to, how to be a good person in this home, how to, success, how to have success in this home. And it says the law was our supervisory guardian. It wasn't only our prison guard. It was also, in verse 24, therefore the law was our tutor. We know what tutors do. They train us. They teach us. The law is training. The law is teaching. For what purpose? To bring us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. The law has its purpose. Why did God, why did God reveal it? Why did God give us the law? Why is there so much teaching about it? It's because it was our prison guard and it was our nurturer in the faith. Because we had to come to an understanding of our sinfulness. Where there is no law, there is no sin. The law came on the scene and there was all kinds of sin. After the first service, somebody came up to me and shared the story about their upbringing, about their parenting. And they said, in my home, when my children were, were infants and newborns, there was no law in the home because they didn't do anything but just lie there or whatever. But as, as they matured and as they, I'm, I'm, they're still little sinners, don't get me wrong. Okay, so, but, but as you understand what he was saying is, but as they grew and as I established no touch, as I established, no, 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 no. When they violated it, the law came, death came, consequences came. Death is a little severe for the family metaphor, right? So uh, consequences came as a result of the law coming into the picture. All it did was what that child did before is now doing. Once before, didn't have consequences. Now it does. Paul says the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. And so as we consider this, this relationship, when the promise is believed, and praise God, the majority of us in here have believed the promise, the faith is in Christ alone is what God, what God accepts and declares us righteous. When the promise is believed, the law has fulfilled its purpose. Remember, the law is, uh, it serves the promise. And it's a good service. It brought me to Christ. I knew my, I was sin. I had no confidence. But when I came to the gospel, God showed me the way out. We are no longer, he says in verse 5, but after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. 
there's, we, I'm going to say this carefully because the, the law has, is profitable for us to, to, to look at and learn from the law to this day, even as Christians. We'll talk more about this, I think, in the coming weeks, but it, it helps us understand what morality is. It understand, helps us understand what obedience looks like. But we're not looking at obedience as a means of receiving righteous standing before God. That has been accomplished when we come to faith in Christ. And therefore, we are no longer under its tutelage. We have come to faith. Its purpose was fulfilled. It was faithful to the task. It helped us to understand our need of Christ. The Mosaic law was never intended to bring harm. It's a beautiful thing. And we will, we will honor it, and we will teach it, and we will talk about it. But it was also never intended to deliver, as in to save. God gave his plan of salvation, and it is perfect. He gave the promise of life all the way back in the garden. He gave the law to show our need of salvation through another. We couldn't do it ourselves. We needed a substitute. That other is Jesus. He sent Jesus to die in our place. We get that, or I hope you do. All those who believe in Jesus are declared righteous in God's eyes. This is the, this is the end result of what, of, what the, of what the law working through the, the law working in our life and our coming to faith in the promise that all those who believe are declared righteous in God's eyes. So do you have confidence that God is happy with you? I know it's a trite way of saying it. Um, this is not a theologically in-depth statement, okay? But this is where I was at when I needed salvation. And maybe you're here today. Do you think God's happy with you? Do you know He's happy with you? Do you have confidence that you will never have to be lost in that maze of sin and death ever again? If you do, then let the gospel give you confidence. You want to have confidence in life. The world wants us to look at all kinds of other things to find confidence in. We here have been telling you over and over again the gospel's for every person at every moment. We just finished a, a, um, a uh, missions conference, and we focused and focused and focused on the gospel. Let the gospel give you confidence. There is no greater knowledge than, than a, that a person has been brought from death to life. But there's no greater confidence you can have in your Christian life than to know that your life is anchored in the gospel. That, that whatever life might be throwing at you at this very moment, sickness, suffering, uh, lack of understanding, turmoil in the home, turmoil at work, just, just feel like the, the sands are shifting underneath your feet in so many areas of life, and you just want to crawl out and say, God, why? Turn to the gospel. God sent his son to die for us. Don't worry if God is happy with you. Bask in the reality that if you come to faith in his son, you're his son, you're his daughter forever. And he is willing to meet you where you are in all your upheaval of life. And he is willing to say, if I was willing to send my son to die in your place, won't I give you everything that is necessary for life and godliness? And he will. The law and the promise, oh, they walk hand in hand. But they're not equal. The promise is what gives us hope. The promise is what changes his life. And we invite you to come to faith in the promise.
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for...